Monday in September. I can't believe it. Nine months of the year. The end of this week, nine months of the year is gone. Wow. Well, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, composers, Sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, authors, you name it, we talk to them. And boy, as I was looking back over this past year alone, uh, the variety of filmmakers we've had on the show, um, live and with, our, with pre-recorded exclusive interviews, just amazing, amazing. Another year with lots of female directors thus far and more to come. Uh, and some really interesting films by new independent filmmakers. Um, I interviewed two new independent filmmakers who are just, you talk about guerrilla filmmaking with an end result that is just incredible. Folks, Greywood's plot, I've got to tell you, I got. I have to give these guys... A huge, huge, huge shout out uh, to Josh Stifter and Daniel Degnan. They're co-writers. Josh is a director. Daniel also stars in the film. Josh is also editor and VFX on the film of Greywood's Plot. Uh, that interview should be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net either tonight or probably, my guess is probably tomorrow. I'm just waiting for the video uh slideshow to be done but it is it's shot in black and white it is truly guerrilla indie filmmaking um but what josh does from a directorial standpoint and editing standpoint is wonderful it is a horror film uh that is just it's creative it's inventive it's a little bit frankenstonian um you've got two hapless nerdy guys there is love for a classic game boy that gets destroyed in the film so all of you gamers out there who, who love collectibles your heart will bleed and break um but it's a really fascinating watch and it's a lot of fun and uh, when I got to talk with Josh and Daniel, I think half the interview was all of us laughing uh, because we were having so much fun because you've got to have a really twisted mind to come up with a film like this and to do what they did uh, on their own. Um, you know, this is what happens in low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget filmmaking. But Greywood's Plot is a film that proves and shows everyone you can make a really cool film with no money. And that's what the boys have done. Uh, and I'm 
I can't wait to see what they come up with next. They're working on a film called Band-Aid right now. Um, and anybody that knows me has, has heard my, my Band-Aid anecdotes. The boys have now heard it as well. So we'll see what happens with that. But in the meantime, check out Greywood's Plot. It's available on digital. I think all, it's also on VOD. Um, with Halloween approaching, you know, October 1st is just around the corner, the end of the week. It's a perfect film to set the tone for Halloween month. But, and then you'll be able to hear my interview with Josh and Daniel. Uh, it should be up by tomorrow on BehindTheLensOnline.net. And I may even sneak it into next week's show. We'll see. But I had to get that out there about Greywood's plot before we dive into today's show. Today's show, it's last week we did politics. Today we're doing religion. Uh, <laughs> growing up, you know, I, the big thing was you, two things you never talk about. You don't talk politics. You don't talk religion. All right. My dad may be rolling over in his grave right now to know that last week it was politics. Today it's a documentary on religion. Um, at the midpoint of the show, joining us live is going to be director and narrator of this film, Yuval David, and his executive producer and partner, husband, Mark McDermott, uh, will be joining us as well. The film is wonderfully made, LGBTQ plus religion. And it's a really interesting film. It's very educational. And it began as a photo art project to meld being gay and Catholicism in iconography. Uh, but then just doing this photo art project wasn't enough. And they turned it into a documentary exploring the relationship between... Catholicism and the LGBTQ community, uh, its shortcomings, the battles. It's quite interesting. And for me, I was really tickled. Uh, one of their main interview subjects is Father James, is Reverend uh, James Martin. And James Martin, he happens to be, uh, we went to the same high school. He was two years behind me, and he, he was in my brother's class. So um, that it was it was really nice to see, and I've read some of his books in the past, uh, and I know he has always gone back to Plymouth Meeting, Norristown area, and, and stayed very supportive of the community there where he's from. So, but to see so much of this film and to hear him speak on uh, on the subject in the film, it was really it, hometown boy. Really, really, really makes good. But I'm excited to talk to Yuval and Mark later in the show. But first, you're going to hear one of the most riveting films that's out right now, The Silent Twins. It is based on the book by Marjorie Wallace. It is written by Andrea Siegel. It is directed by Polish filmmaker Agnieszka Smozinska. And if I screwed up your last name, I'm so sorry, Agnieszka. Um, it is riveting. It's a true story presented as a narrative. And it is the story of June and Jennifer Gibbons. Uh, twins, they were the only black family in a small town in Wales growing up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, 
um, they stopped communicating with anybody. As little girls, they were very animated, very outgoing. They put on their own little radio shows. They did what all kinds of, of little kids do. And then they stopped. And they stopped speaking to anybody except themselves. And even when they spoke with themselves, it was in hushed tones if anybody was around. And yet, in their mind, their minds were so creative. Uh, they would write stories. They would write plays. They would put them on in their own room uh, for each other. And as they became teens, some rebellion did set in. And it broke through that silence. But then they reverted back to that. And they were so connected. Um, it was one couldn't exist without the other. And this was discovered when they were pl finally placed into a psychiatric institute for many, many, many years. Uh, just, and they were separated. And one you know, started starving herself. It just, they were so connected. This is their story, The Silent Twins. It is a psychological thriller, but also a character study in symbiotic duality because they really, they act and behave as one. And this is carried out through incredible, impeccable performances from Letitia Wright, as June, Tamara Lawrence as Jenny. Jody May comes in as Marjorie Wallace, who wrote the book, but who w did interviews with them and got to know the girls when they were institutionalized at Broadmoor. Two breakout young actresses. Leah Mondesir-Simmons plays the young June, which is who Letitia Wright plays. Eva Ariana Baxter plays the young Jenny, which is who Tamara Lawrence plays. The casting... First of all, casting Letitia Wright and, T and Tamara Lawrence and their, their work to be uh, it's stereophonic as you watch the two of them in tandem with movement, with walking, with dance, with facial expressiveness. Then to find two young actresses who can play each of them as young girls, utterly amazing. Agnieszka has done a tremendous job with this film. It is technically impeccable. Um, Kuba Joukowsky is the cinematographer. It is a very deliberate palette of gray with the only color really coming as the film explores the creativity within the girls' minds and their writings. The soundscape, though, is truly, truly remarkable. Uh, you hear the minutiae of buzzing lights, typing keys, layers of music, whispers and chatter, um, even an old dot matrix printer. And all of that is layered in with Marcin Masek's um, beautiful score. It is, uh, sonically, it's incredible just to listen to this film because sound is so important in the mat in the manner in which June and Jenny communicate or don't communicate, which means all the ambient notes around them come to the fore and are layered in. But just absolutely a technically stunning film, award-worthy performances, 
just fabulous. This is authenticity is retained without this becoming a documentary. You never feel like this is a documentary, even though it is uh, a true story based on June and Jenny. Just amazing, amazing work. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Agnieszka Smozinska talking about the Silent Twins. You wonderful, wonderful filmmaker, you. This is one of the most fascinating films I have seen in a while. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It is a psychological thriller, but also this incredible character study in a symbiotic duality of Mm -hmm. individuals with contrasts and comparisons and how needs and wants are in conflict with each other. Spellbound. Spellbound watching this. Mm, Thank you. The big thing that, that stands out for me is how cinematic this film is, yet how truthful and authentic it is without feeling like a documentary. So often when people are taking a true story and true lives... And they want to be authentic, and they want everything to be just so. They, it feels more like a documentary. This is so cinematic, and you really capture the creativity and imagination within June and Jennifer, and you translate that to the screen. So I have to ask you, how challenging was it to come up with this kind of visual grammar and visual design to really bring these girls, their minds, to life? You know, everything was... Because always when I start to working on the movie and when I start to work on the visual side and also on the tone of the movie, I always start to... I always start from the characters. And June and Jennifer as the characters, as the writers, and their sensitivity and their imagination was the starting point and was the the most important thing in terms of and them as a as a as a human being, as artists, as writers, they imposed everything. Because I started to after reading the script, I read the book mm-hmm. and I read their writing. And I found I found their their writings, poems, diaries very full of sense of humor, huge imagination. This uh, you know, and disturbing at the same time, very original, unique. And I found there were amazing two girls who grew up in this you know very dull, depressing Wales. And I wanted to show this juxtaposition between them and between their imagination and between their inner world and between the outside world. And this this was in uh, Andra's script. And the way how she combined this uh, juxtaposition, their vision versus the outside world, uh, intrigued me very, very much. And I loved it because I knew that this world, the girls were like this. Mm-hmm. They were very, you know, they were, I love also how Andrea, you know, combined the brutality versus the victimhood. You know, their full imagination 
versus Boredom mm-hmm. they have with the outside world. So it was something what, uh, what intrigued me, inspired me, and I, I felt obsessed. And I liked very much the process when you have to, you know, find the, the way how to to tell in terms of the visual side. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where your work with your cinematographer with Kuba is just yes. absolutely stunning. The way that, number one, you do keep everything in the grays. We have no sun. Any life and really vibrancy, you save that for the animated sequences of their creativity coming to life. And then we get vibrant yellows or, or greens or red of blood, life force. It's so incredible. And you draw in, you use extreme close-ups on very key moments and elements. And then the one time you go into an overhead shot is when the girls are with Preston and his friend. And that is a real break and shift in the girls because it's so true it's always a boy that's going to come between women and <laughs> in the and with that dynamic that's where we start to see individuality really come into play and the color and the way you tweak the imagery with the blossoming flowers the drug-induced haze it is so metaphoric yeah. and so powerful uh, it just blows me away Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That could could not have been easy for you and Cuba to design that. Yes, but we loved it. (laughs) We love this moment when you can start to create and when when you can, you know, bring their creativity to, to life. That's what you said. And just to start to imagine because on the spiritual level and on the creativity level you could meet with the characters because they were writers because they were artists and i started to think about collaborators who could meet with girls with june and jennifer on a sensitivity level and that's why i i started to work with cuba and we of course we went to wales and we were uh, we we made a research and of course we we studied the barbados and we were like starting to think about them, how could they see the light, how they, what they could like in the light, what they could, what kind of the colors they could, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like also what kind of the movies they could watch, the books read, and also the TV programs, the music, and everything of this we are researching, we are reading, and we are watching, and then we started to invent. And this part of the work I lost the most because this is like, the brainstorm which you have, and also what I loved that you could, that I could bring the collaborators, the the artists together, and we could work and think about, and we could meet with June and Jennifer on this level. Well, it's obvious how much you loved that aspect of this process because it shows in every frame on screen. And then you very keenly, I have to tell you, this soundscape is absolutely stunning. You're working with so many elements here on on an aural level, a sonic level, so that we get 
the period perfect lighting that has its own kind of sounds, the shoes, things moving on the floor, the specific sound of that portable typewriter when you hit the single the single keys. And then you the whispering, the layers of the whispering, and as opposed to the chatter, the nonstop chatter when they're when they're little girls. And then you bring in the music on top of that, not only the individual lyric songs, but Marcine Malsek's beautiful score. All of that is so haunting. How difficult was working with your sound team to come up with this soundscape? Because it's a layer of storytelling on its own in this film. Yes. I always work with the sound designer before the movie. We are working together when we are working on the script. And the sound, uh, I started to work like this for, uh, during my first movie, The Law, which was musical. And I discovering the sound as a, one of the layers to tell the story. And I think the sound is very important. And also what I realized now, I was in London in a Shakespeare theater. And you know that for Shakespeare, the sound was very important. The sound and the effects, the special effects in terms of the sound was the, the, the moment when you can highlight the emotion and you can sell the characters and you can sell much more. So we are working together with Martin Lenarchet before, before months, months before the movie started. We are working on the, on the script together. Then I asked Basia Rupik, the, the director from Stop Motion Animation, to work with us. So there were three of us who were sitting together, and we wrote together the script for the sound. Mm-hmm. And then it was, uh, with Basia it was after the thing, but with, with Martin we were working together. And then when the movie was editing, not after editing, but during editing process, I was adding some moment of the sound and also the music because I think and I'm sure that the sound changes the character of the scene very often. Mm-hmm. The same is with the music. So I treat the soundscape as a as a score, as a, also like like a piece of the the song. And the sound is very important to me, the way how what they could hear. And for example, I don't know if you realize but there is also the 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 pounding of the heart because the bobby is the mm-hmm. story of the bobby yes the stop motion animation and we are trying to put the the rhythm of the heart in the whole movie for the viewers of course it's very under under uh, underneath mm-hmm. still there and also the the sound was very important in terms of the transformation from the realistic scene into the visionary scenes and also from visionary scenes into realistic scenes. The sound was very important uh, when the when the song started. Mm-hmm. So the the sound is the way of the narration of the movie. And I think uh, and Kuba and Martin they they work very also very they also understand each other very much. So. Uh, I like very much this process when you can add something. And of course, this whispering, it wasn't in a script. We added uh, during the uh, during the sound work. We thought how we can 
how we can highlight their bones and how we can highlight you know uh, their uh, their communication and that's why we decided to add this whispering I love I I love the whispering because and it's so it's for in many scenes it's very very low I found myself leaning in closer to the speakers mm. because they're talking so hushed that it's they don't want you to hear all the words it's like they want to yeah. entice you in and that's exactly what you've done with the sound mix and the modulation in there it's just so outstanding so outstanding but now i'm curious how was the editing process with this one because you're editing your visuals and your sound and that's altering character in some instances but you also have to have that pacing and your pacing it's paced like a hitchcock movie it's paced like a, a thriller i have to tell you you know it's like what are they going to do next oh my god what are they going to do uh-oh we see we see jealousy rearing its head in every step and you just build and build and build to that climactic moment in Act Three, and you go, "Oh my God!" Um, yeah. How? how you know, the, I, I love the editing process because it's for me it's very. You can improve the movie, and you can. Uh, that's what you said. The pace is very important, and the rhythm of the movie is very important. And during the editing process, I was uh, uh, eliminating eliminating scenes which were repetitive in terms of the emotions and in terms of the information. And uh, I I was I, I very often show screen the movie to my friends or to people who I trust to. And then I'm I also study how the audience reacts to the movie, how the audience reacts to some scenes. And uh, this is the and what is the most important for me to 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 get the moment when you find the pace of the movie, when you find the pace of the characters, and when you find the rhythm of the storytelling of the movie. It's not uh, I'm not this kind of director which uh, who uh, who who edit movie very fast. I very often very often searching for the the best rhythm and the best pace in terms of the characters and in terms of the story. Mm -hmm. I just outstanding. I'm curious with your casting. Number one, Letitia Wright is flawless. She yes. is the emotion that she puts forth on her face with her eyes and how she can look down and look heartbroken or crestfallen or anger and you see the difference in what she brings and what Tamara brings as June and Jenny and where the strengths and the weaknesses are and the manip more manipulative nature that Jenny has over June but then you've got to also in addition to matching up them you had to get these incredible younger actors <laughs> to play them and those two girls, I mean, Leia and Ava, they are amazing. Yes, yes, I agree. First there was Leticia, and to Leticia we are trying to find her partner, her sister, 
and it was Tamara. Of course, we are, you know, we are going through many, many auditions and castings. It was very important to me and to Leticia too to find a girl who could have who, who could have chemistry with her, mm -hmm. and when you could relate the sisters. And I uh, I didn't uh, look for a win. I rather look somebody who could be so strong, so powerful as Leticia is, and who could have depth. And Leticia has all of these dimensions. And then we, uh, Leticia saw Leah in a theater, and she, she told me, you know, I saw amazing girls in a theater. And during this time, Leah was six years old, and we contacted Leah. Leah came uh, to the casting, and I was totally, you know, blown away by her, by Leah. And then we are trying to find the partner for her. But Leah was very small, and the every girl was much bigger. And two weeks before the shooting was found, Eva. <laughs> it was very, yeah, it was really very stressful for us. But I didn't want to agree for the girl who wouldn't be, who wouldn't have chemistry with Leah as, as Eva has. I have to say, Leah and Ava, to start the film off with them and their radio routine that they do and their singing, it's just so fantastic. And that really helps set a tone for, as we then see them in their, in their later teens and then into young adulthood. And it's just a fascinating character study. You really take us on this internal journey with these two girls, and you keep us in their point of view, in their POV. It was very important, yes. You never falter. One last question for you. I, you are so passionate about the directorial process, the cinematography, the sound, the editing. You know, what is the gift that directing gives to you when you get to direct a film like The Silent Twins and bring it to life? Huh. What is the gift? Yeah, what is, what's the gift that get, directing and storytelling gives to you? Especially when oh, you make I a film know. this great. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very hard question. I don't know what to answer. What is the, what is the gift? I, I don't, I, I just, you know, me as a director, I just, I just love that it. it's very challenging, but also it's some that you, in this particular movie, it was that you can bring the story to the audience and you can bring June and Jennifer as amazing girls as a writer. And it was very challenging, but at the same time, very inspiring to adapt their writings. So it's something what I just love to do. So I don't know if it's a good answer for your question. I think it's a wonderful answer. And oh, just yeah. just very quickly, did you at any time speak with June since I know she's still alive? Yeah. June gave the blessing for the movie. Oh. And she leaves her. Yes, and she's very happy that the movie is released now. She, uh, she leaves her private life. And she, yeah, and she doesn't uh, and we we just respect we just respect this. She should be thrilled with how this film looks and how it feels when you yeah. watch it. An incredible job! Yeah. I can't wait to see what you bring us next. <laughs> Thank you so much.
Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, and I hope we get to chat again in the future. Yes, I hope. Yes, yes. Oh. I will be very happy to. Oh, thank you so, so much. And you have a wonderful rest thank of your you. day or night. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, bye, bye. And that was Agnieszka Smosinska talking about the Silent Twins. If you haven't seen it yet, please do. And also, if you want a really good read, uh, pick up a copy of, if you can find it, Marjorie Wallace's book, Uh on the Silent Twins. Uh, it's a fascinating read as well. Well, right now, I think we have them both here. Yuval David and Mark McDermott are joining us. Are you there, gentlemen? You're there. You're here. We are. Thank you for having us on your show. I am so thrilled to have the two of you on the show to talk about Wonderfully Made, LGBTQ plus religion. Uh, a, yes. a daring film, to say the least. A very eye-opening film. An enlightening film. An educational film. And, yeah, keep going. There's more on that list. And entertaining. Uh, Thank you. I, I just, I didn't know what to expect when I sat down to watch this. And I have to tell you, uh, you guys really, you blew my mind. And I'll tell you, it, it certainly did help that Reverend James Martin is in it because, as it turns out, um, Reverend Martin and I graduated from the same, not only from the same high school, but he was in my brother's class two years behind oh, wow. me. So, what a coincidence. <laughs> so, you know, once you're a colonial, you always try and support the other ones. So I've read some of his books in the past, and I know I have interviewed other directors where he has actually been an interview subject in some of their films as well. So that was a real surprise for me and a real treat. But oh, That's wonderful, Debbie. Uh, but this wonderfully made, number one, uh, the fact that you have titled this based on Psalm 139.14 is perfection. Because all of Psalm 139, I think, is one of the best psalms in the Bible. Uh, I agree with that. You know, I know many people are probably out there going, oh my God, she's talking religion. Last week she's talking politics, now she's talking religion. Um, yeah, but you know, if we can't speak about these topics, then how are we supposed to address them and, and continue moving forward? I think it's a a very important thing to be able to lean into the topics that challenge people mm -hmm. because when we are challenged and when we're able to challenge others with respect, I think that's where education can happen. That's where growth can happen. And that's where spirituality happens, no matter if it's spirituality that's on the basis of religion or, or art or creativity or humanism or whatever it might be. I completely, completely agree. And that's one of the great things about this, about this documentary. You know, talk to me about how this even came to be. This started as a photographic fine art project that would meld being gay and Catholic into well-known religious iconography. 
Uh, and here again, you picked for the photo, uh, for the photographics, you picked the most powerful images that the Christian world has knows when it comes to Jesus Christ. Um, and we'll get into the into the photography later uh, because that's a real treat for everybody. Last fifteen minutes of the film, and it is breathtaking. But no spoiler alert. No, spoiler alert. <laughs> but you know, I know, right? No, we, but, we do talk about it. I mean, we set yes. up the, this photo project as, I always refer to it as the final structure of the story. The narrative arc of this entire story is through seeing the creation of this new iconography representing LGBTQ people within religion and within this, this film specifically, within Catholicism, letting LGBTQ people know that they are part of this community and they have they must have representation and then in turn letting the rest of the catholic community know that lgbtq people are part of the community and mm -hmm. need to be represented just as much mm -hmm. absolutely yeah, I agree. The, the idea for this came about because if you think about it for almost 1700 years jesus has been depicted exactly one way Mm -hmm. as a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes, probably from Northern Europe. And we know that's not only not historically accurate, but it's really not in keeping with the words that we're always taught, which is that God is really reflected in all of us. Mm -hmm. And if you're really going to mean that, then you really got to vary how you depict God. A lot of other religions, especially in the Far East, are much better at doing that. They have many, many, many different gods, many different images, but not so much in Catholicism or in a lot of Christianity. And so we decided, look, if, if we mean what we say, let's actually show it. Instead of talking about it, let's show it. So that's the genesis of the idea, and then that's the entire uh, idea behind the idea uh, from beginning to end. And I think it's spectacular, and you are very correct, that this is the spine, and this is your through line around which all the other branches uh, are extended. And right. you have broken this up so beautifully to get all these different interviews and opinions in. Uh, I think Mary and Duddy Burke had one of, the, one of the greatest lines in the film, you know, where she says, you know, I may have lost my relationship with the church, but not my relationship with God. And I think that is a permeating message within this documentary gentlemen is that everyone you speak with even the young uh, the young people that are participating in the photo project that is their big thing they have not lost their connection with god it's the the sorrow and the pain of losing the relationship with the church with their family with those things and uh, that one line that Marianne says just stands out head and shoulders in this doc. Yeah, well, it, it actually is consistent with something I've always believed, which is that the spiritual is part of the DNA of the human race. And even among mm -hmm. people, and there are many who justifiably believe that they don't really have a belief as such, which is fine. But the reality is we all have this almost innate desire to want to define ourselves in relation to something much bigger than ourselves. And we all have our own ideas of what that bigger thing is. But the key thing is you can have it without any institutional religion of 
any kind. Mm -hmm. And it is a shame that so much institutional religion does its best to beat that out of everybody Mm -hmm. when it's actually part of who we are. Another important element, or a quote, rather, from one of our interviewees, Natalia Imperatori Lee, who's a theologian, she said within the film that the church needs LGBTQ people more than LGBTQ people need the church. And one of the reasons I appreciate that is because I also do a lot of social and political activism, Mm -hmm. and I often remind elected officials that I represent them just as much as they represent me. Yes. And I think that's the same exact uh, situation within religion. So there are so many LGBTQ people within the congregations, and and LGBTQIA+, the plus of allyship. We all need to speak up. And if we want to see change, even within these old institutions, such as the Catholic Church, we do need to speak up, and we do need to take action. And that's exactly what we did here with our art projects and with our documentary film. You know, how did you have such a variety of interview subjects here? Uh, How did you go about, and granted, they're all active, activists in some way, shape, or form. Uh, But I'm curious how you made the selection of who you would bring in, you know, how you would bring in Reverend Martin or Sister Janine Gramic. Anybody, if they watch the news, they're going to know who Sister Janine Gramic is. Um, Brian Massengale. How did you develop, you know, and seek out those interview subjects for this film? Well, it was very important for me as the director of this film to make sure that I'm showing differing opinions. Uh, one thing that's that's unique here within all of our interviewees is these interviewees, while they're activists and they're often speaking at conferences and events and on panel discussions, they're not usually all seen together. Mm-hmm. And some of them are never seen together. This was a great opportunity to show people who are pursuing maybe similar things in completely different ways. Uh, now, It's also important to mention there were other people we reached out to who we wanted to include in this film, but they either completely disagreed with the elements of inclusion or they disagreed with uh, what we're trying to say here, that LGBTQ people deserve representation. So there were people who, who turned us down. Wow. You know, and that that is something that has always baffled me when it comes to religion, because you people will claim that they are religious, that they are Christians. Well, you know, Jesus died for your sins. So even if it may be a sin to do something or be one way, it's OK. Uh, so we get into some hypocrisy with a lot of people, and that's very disappointing that people would not embrace this particular documentary Um, because everybody deserves to be noticed and to and to belong and for this iconography which I think is all it's beautiful what you've done it's it's stunning Um, it is some of it is so moving uh, that I uh, unbelievable Um, so that surprises me that people would not want to get on board, that they are so conflicted or, convic- or convicted with their own ideas that they could not see the forest for the trees here. 
well, it's it's easy for some people, unfortunately, to get that way, especially in the Catholic Church. And the problem is that if you just limit yourself to reading the four Gospels, you come away with a picture of Jesus that is radically different from the picture that a lot of people have developed. Mm-hmm. And that far more restrictive and intolerant view that has been developed over time really comes from the teaching of men, and it really is all men. There are no women teachers in the Catholic Church. Uh, it all comes from, from men, and it really has nothing to do with the words of the Bible. So, for example, uh, in, in Catholic dogma, people who, quote, suffer, quote, from same-sex attraction are objectively disordered. Well, where is that ugly phrase in anything Jesus says? Absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, that phrase was written in 1986 at the height of the AIDS crisis, I might add, by then uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, who later became Pope Benedict. That is just a, a phrase that is premised on nothing but extreme meanness, in my view, and, and it reflects the views of people who have totally veered from the kind of things that Jesus said and did. Mm-hmm. No, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, as you were, were you developing your full storyline as you were shooting, as you were picking up your interviews? What was your cinematic process like in putting this together? Well, this originally started as a photo art project. And I said to my husband, Mark, not only should we create this project, but here's a great opportunity to do a behind-the-scenes documentary on what happens during the exploratory process of going from a concept to a finished product. So we knew that that was going to be the narrative arc. And then pulling in all kinds of different interviewees to see what they're saying as to why this type of iconography is important. And then adding in archival footage to show the history of what happens within this intersectional identity, LGBTQIA plus Catholic identity, and how the church treats the LGBTQ community and how the LGBTQ community treats the church and all of this information. So that's kind of how we went into it, knowing that we were going to be guided through this storytelling process through the power of art. Mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned something very important here, the archival footage. Um, you have some very powerful and topical archival footage here. How difficult was it? Um, how much of a research team did you have to dig this out and cull it down to what you would eventually use in the documentary? Well, the research team was made of me, Yuval, and my husband here, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we went online. Now, that's one of the things that I also wanted to make sure is important within this film is there are so many people who feel alone and feel like there isn't anybody that represents them. And I would go online and say, within a short Google search, I could find all of this information. That exactly was the same with finding the archival footage, going online, seeing what different uh, popes and priests and church officials were saying and what was in Catholic media and Christian media and in mainstream media and in contrast what was in LGBTQ media. So it was very easy to find this. But I will say that I also went into the dark web, the deep web, mm. to do some even more intense searches. 
And Mark, I don't know if you remember when I came up to you and said, I, I don't even know if I want to tell you what I found. There were horrendous, horrendous videos and images of people being bullied and beaten up and attacked in the name of Catholicism. And some of those I, I couldn't even use in this film because it would change our rating. If I wow. would have included some of that, we would not be able to show this in schools. We would not be able to have a, a rating that would be uh, okay enough for youth to watch. And that was horrible, but it also empowered me and added extra fuel to the fire of the, the need to create a film like this. That's true. I want to add a couple other things in response to your question. So, yeah, you're both right. The research team was him and me. Um, and it was every bit as time-consuming as you would imagine it would be. We ended up with over 390 pieces of archival footage in this mm. thing. But you, you, we mentioned earlier that we couldn't find anybody with opposing views willing to participate. Mm -hmm. Well, we didn't need to. We found plenty of their views online. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and we used it very, very extensively, as you can see. <clears throat> number one. Number two, um, to give you an example of, of some of the work that was involved, it wasn't unusual for us to find a solid hour of material or more, for example, the Pulse nightclub. Um, but then to, to whittle that down to the equivalence of maybe 40 seconds uh, took every, but, every much every bit of time as you could imagine it possibly would, but in every instance, we wanted to really take the viewer into the experience so that they felt like they were actually there, and not only with the Pulse nightclub, but, but several other uh, situations um, that we described. Well, I have to, I have to commend you guys and, and your editor, Hugo Perez, uh, on culling down the Pulse nightclub footage. That has to be the most powerful single segment that I have seen or heard and a lot of that is hearing. We're hearing what's happening. And right. that I just commend you on that segment alone. That had to be a Herculean effort to cull all that Pulse nightclub footage and to come up with this one piece. Because that is so powerful. Yeah, I mean, to represent one of the worst terrorist attacks in the country since 9-11, yeah. uh, that was a specific attack on the LGBTQ community. It was very difficult to, to cut that down and to share the story, but also share the story and how it affected this specific narrative, mm -hmm. this specific look at the Catholic Church and its treatments of LGBTQ people. There was an erasure that was happening where the Catholic Church wasn't commenting on this, and there were different people who weren't commenting on this tragedy and on this attack on LGBTQ people, while they were quick to comment and support victims of other tragedies. So we had to say, okay, why is this happening? What is the double standard? So how to tell this story but still weave it into the ultimate fabric and the overreaching narrative of this specific film. Uh, it was most definitely painstaking, and, and I'll say uh, Mark and I were definitely looking moment by moment, split second by split second wow. in terms of how to, to create that section of the film. Yeah, I know there's so much archival stuff in the film, and then I'm watching the credits, and um, it's like it, endless, 
endless with your archival endless. footage. <laughs> I I think it's safe to say that out of the thousands and thousands of films that I have seen, I have never seen archival credits like that in my life. <laughs> well, I, I think it just goes back to what Mark said. When we first were turned down by certain interviewees, we leaned towards the archival mm-hmm. footage. We said, do we really need, I mean, Mark just said it, do we really need to speak right. to them? We already hear all of this stuff that's so easy to find. And that's why we needed to focus on the positivity. This needed to be a film that is not against people. It's for people. Mm-hmm. We needed positivity to be there as much as possible. And then we would show the archival stuff, which was the negativity, which was the hardship, which was the the bullying and the attacks and the lack of representation, the lack of advocacy, the lack of inclusion. And then leaning back on here are people who are fighting and dedicating their lives towards including and helping LGBTQ people. And then here's an art project that will represent you with the beauty of art. So we really wanted to make this as positive of an experience as possible, all while showing the the extreme challenges and the emotionality there. Well, I guarantee you that there are many people that when they watch this documentary, and by the time it ends, after this incredible, the art project montage, and some of the most beautiful chorale and score that I have ever heard, you're going to have people in tears. It is so uplifting, well, so inspiring, so beautiful. It, it, it just priceless, priceless. Your final set, that final montage is, it, it's ethereal. It's that beautiful. How did you feel when you were watching it? Oh, my God. I started tearing up at some of the images. Um, just, and then with the chorale music, um, interwoven and buttressing what we're seeing in the beautiful way that you've got some superimpositions and dissolves, just, it's very cinematic, but it's, it's just so powerful and striking, but it is, it's ethereal to watch, to look at this and the images immediately recognizable. Uh, you know, I've seen them thousands of times uh, in, in Bibles, in Bible stories. You know, they're the most famous images of Christ. Uh, and to see the, and you don't lose anything. You well, know. Um, that's very, very heartening for us to hear as artists. When we had our festival premiere on Saturday um, out on at, the, at the Out on Film Film Festival in Atlanta, uh, we actually did film the, the audience um, reactions, um, and and there was a, a lot of uh, a lot of those similar reactions. Yeah, we uh, we were looking at people who were just still throughout the whole movie, or, or leaning in and barely moving throughout the whole movie. And then when it came to that photo montage. There were people in the audience who were like convulsively weeping. And for us to see that, to see them absorb this art and be affected by it. I mean, on one hand, yes, it's affirming for for us as creators and artists. But more than that, it showed the need for this. And it showed 
that there were people who desperately needed to see themselves and their loved ones within this type of iconography. Uh, so above feeling like we achieved something, it proved the need for that something. Uh, you know, art has always been a very powerful means of, uh, of connection and communication uh, and emotion. And film is also an art. So for you to meld the two, gentlemen, you have a win-win here. There, there's no, there is no downside here to what you have, what you have created uh, on any level. Do you have... Well, our next, our, our next screening is happening uh, at the Woodstock Film Festival on September 29th. So I hope that, that you and all of your listeners uh, can, can help support and, and bring people to see these screenings followed after the Woodstock Film Festival on September 29th. We're going to be at the Portland Film Festival on October 11th. And then we have a few other festivals that we're not able to announce yet. Uh, because we have to wait for the fests to announce first. But this is this is a film and an art project that does require community support mm-hmm. uh, because it is such a challenging topic for so many. And there are people who are against the LGBTQ people and don't want to support concepts like this. And there are LGBTQ people who are so traumatized by religion that sometimes they don't they don't want to see it. We need to reach out to everybody and say, hey, here's a very inclusive project um, that, that can help create change. It represents the need for change. It represents the conversation, and it can enhance the conversation that we so very need, especially because ultimately the fact is when you look at the vast majority of anti-LGBTQ legislation and laws and anti-LGBTQ opinions, they're on the basis of religion. We need to explore what happens with that religious belief when it comes to the LGBTQ community. And it's up to us to create that change we want to see. Mm-hmm. You know, a very big question for you gentlemen, because it is the polarization of the issue, I think, is at the forefront um, within Catholicism. But it's also present in other religions as well maybe not to this degree as with the catholic church but will you be expanding this uh to the episcopalians the baptists the foursquare uh the lutherans will you be expanding and and showcasing this to them as well because yes this may speak to the catholic church but everybody has the same kind of problem absolutely that's why that's why we have this two-part title <laughs> to this film. It's wonderfully made LGBTQ plus R, where the R, we further define it as religion. I hope that, or we hope, that this is just going to be the first part of a series, this one looking at Catholicism, and then have the next film look at another denomination of another faith and continuing it as a series looking at every denomination of every faith. So that is the ultimate goal. It all really rides upon the success of this no, film. This one. If audiences respond to it, if uh, the the powers that be at the networks and streaming platforms see the need for this type of content, that means that we can create it and keep expanding upon this topic. 
See, I, I, the whole time I was watching this, because I grew up Lutheran, I am Lutheran, my mother grew up Baptist, and I don't know what she ended up being before she passed away. I don't think anything. But my grandparents were very devout Lutherans from Ger old world Germany. Um, mm -hmm. And what I found as I was watching this, what struck me is my grandmother had no problem with the LGBTQ community. No problem. She had problems with Catholics, but not <laughs> with the LGBTQ community. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that struck me because, you know, when she passed away, she was 105 when she passed away. Uh, so the advancements for the gay community had not been had not been achieved yet. But she right. but no, it was the Catholics she had problems with. But not the gay community. Uh, and that that's, sprung that's in, that sprung into my head as I was watching this. And I just kept thinking, gosh, um, wouldn't it be great to get perspectives from other religions? On this same subject. Well, we're already we're already getting messages from other religious leaders and other activists and organizations who are part of other faith traditions and other religions, other denominations, who are already reaching out to us saying, "Hey, we want to be involved in the next project." So that's very exciting to know that there is this groundswell of activity. Mm -hmm. And we do very much invite everybody, all of your listeners and the friends and families of your listeners to follow us across the media, to connect with us, to show your support for this project and support for the series. Um, it, it, like I said, it does take a village and we need the village to stand up, especially during this era of civil rights and social justice movements where people finally realize we can't wait for somebody to advocate on behalf of us. We have to do it ourselves. Well, you are off to an extremely, extremely good start with wonderfully made LGBTQ plus religion. Just absolutely incredible film, guys. Um, you know, I very, I, quickly, I've got to ask each of you, you know, what did each of you take away from this project in getting this made, in seeing this photo art project come to fruition as well as the documentary what did each of you take away from this experience one of the things that I took away is how much how much the people involved in the production were affected and that is a really beautiful thing that is is rare to happen on film sets. So many times we think about the audience. What is the, how is the audience going to react? But to know that we had such an exploratory project where I say this millions of times to the point that my husband rolls his eyes because he hears me <laughs> say it all the time, but it's so important to me. Every set that I create as a director or as a producer, or even if I'm coming on as talent, I need it to be a safe space. And we hear the concept of safe space throughout advocacy, a safe space for us to be included, for us to exist. But I want to turn it into a brave space, a brave space where people can be vulnerable, can be sensitive, can be playful, can explore uh, themselves during the project, explore how they are storytellers within this ultimate story. And that was something that was truly amazing 
to see that there were people who learned about themselves or were able to share something about themselves during this process, or they almost saw this art project, and the art project, I'm including the art of film, mm-hmm. as a form of therapy, as, as a form of yeah. just opening up to themselves in a, in a genuine way. That was something that was just remarkable. And what about for you, Mark? You know, one of my, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and what about for you, Mark? I guess uh, there were a lot of takeaways, but I'll focus on one. You know, we thought it might appeal to people, or would appeal to people, but it was amazing to see how many people in the film, uh, or everybody we talked about the film, participated in it at so many different levels. In fact, we had about 150 people uh, that worked on this film. It it spoke to them all, uh, and it was not just another project or another job, but they all really, really affected by it. In the film, we show snippets from about 10 auditions, mm-hmm. and we when we did the casting, we really weren't sure if anybody was going to show up. I mean, it was kind of a risky, in some degree, a risky thing to take on, but we had over 500 people show up, and we asked them all to speak about what this project meant to them or why they were even doing it. And we got long um, um, speeches and, and dialogues by all of them about what this meant to them, even people who didn't grow up with any religion at all. So even at that level, um, we were experiencing this uh, from from beginning to end, and it was just kind of amazing to see, and it was amazing to see when we were in Atlanta over the weekend. Wow. Well, gentlemen, this has been such a privilege to have you on the show today to talk about one of the ours. This is people can follow along on fe- upcoming festivals. Everything is on your website, Wonderfully Made Movie. Um, or WonderfullyMadeFilm.com. MadeFilm.com. Okay. And then your hashtags are Wonderfully Made Movie. Yes. So <laughs> you can find us at WonderfullyMadeFilm.com, on Instagram at WonderfullyMadeMovie, on Twitter at Wonderful underscore Made underscore, and on Facebook, Wonderfully Made LGBTQ Religion. Um, but... Even if you just search for the film title across social media, you'll be able to see you'll find a lot it. there, including the film trailers and diff- different little teasers that we're putting out there. Um, and I love your little I social me- your love your little social media kit page on the website is fabulous. Oh, thank you. Yes, everybody can go to that social media kit where you get all the information and find that linked on the we made film dot com website. Um, and I, I also say to anybody who's listening out there who is feeling alone or is feeling underrepresented, do not hesitate to reach out to us on the film social media, on my, uh, David's social media, on Mark McDermott, my husband's social media. We, we are here just as so many people who are dedicating our lives to tell people's stories, to improve people's lives, um, and, and we're here for you. Well, once at now that the show's gone out live later tonight, this will be up on my website and then out on all as a podcast and on all the usual suspect podcast places, iTunes, Google Podcasts, 
Podbean, Stitcher, all of that. And I will make sure that I have on the website um, all of your contact information so that people can find you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's truly, truly, just, we're, we're honored and thankful be on your show, especially because of the beautiful voice that you have and what you represent as a storyteller yourself. Oh, thank you. Well, gentlemen, you're going to have to come back on the show again. With, without any hesitation, pleasure, whatever you want. You've got, you got, you're on the festival circuit now. I'm sure you're going to get distribution. And, I hope so. And when you do, you're going to have to come back on, and then as you make the next chapters uh, in this pursuit, I have, I, you have an open invitation anytime. Uh, thank you, and it's a date. All right. Hey, I like- hey you're married, Mark. Now it's a date. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I'll take both of you. That's better. That's yeah. better. I'll take Getting both. Getting jealous there. Uh, don't worry. I'll take both of you. Oh, gentlemen, <laughs> Yuval, Mark, thank you so much. And have a wonderful festival at Woodstock. And we will be in touch. Thank you. We're so- Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, and that was Yuval David and Mark McDermott talking about Wonderfully Made LGBTQ plus religion currently on the festival circuit. Yes, you can find out where, what festivals will be upcoming. Uh, And yes, all of this will be on my website when I get this up uh, on the site. Uh, So check it out. That is all the time we have today. Next week. I forget who we have next week. We have people, Pam. We have people next week. Who do we have next week? Ah, next week we're going to be talking about Red River Road. And then mark your calendars, all you cat fanciers, October 10th. I'm so excited. My Hong is going to be here, director of Cat Daddies, uh, which is the cutest film in the world. So be on the lookout for Cat Daddies, folks. But until then, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.